0: You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org. If you would please join with me in turning to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. We read beginning with the first verse. We'll read to verse 16. Ephesians chapter 4. We begin with verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ so that we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, that is, Christ, from whom the whole body, being joined and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the properly measured working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Tonight we're going to set our attention on the seventh verse. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let's ask our God's blessing tonight. Father in heaven, thank You for time together. We've already been edified as we have sung the Word of God in praises. We are edified by our interaction with each other, the fellowship and the joy of being with brethren. Now, Lord, we turn our attention to Your Word and we ask as it is proclaimed Your Spirit would do His work, Your work in our hearts. You know what we need, you know Lord, those among us who don't know you, we ask for their salvation, but for your church we ask for edification and the building up of your people in our most holy faith. We ask you for these things in Jesus' name, amen. We've been talking about local church unity from Ephesians chapter 4. This is what Paul is doing in this letter to the Ephesians, for them and for Any other church that would read this letter and any other believer who would read this letter, he is exhorting us to live out the unity that is ours in God's Son. So far we've seen that if we're going to do that, there are things necessary to it. There is an ambition necessary for local church unity. You see that in verse 1 when he exhorts us to walk worthy of our calling. Walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That is to say, what we're aiming at when we think about local church unity is the glory of God. To live lives that are fitting with respect to God's mercy to us. That really speak of the salvation that we have been given in Jesus. Attitudes are necessary for local church unity. Verse 2 says, we're to do this with all humility and gentleness and patience. We can't live lives that are worthy of our calling without living in humility and dealing with each other in a way that is gentle and patient. These are the attitudes necessary to live out, to experience, to demonstrate the unity that is ours in Christ. Those attitudes flow out in determined action. We must work at bearing with one another, And yet, not sort of the gritting of your teeth. It's not just some sort of duty without joy. He says we do this in love. Bearing with one another in love. And so with minds informed by the truth, we'll talk about that in a moment, we determine to be long-suffering toward each other. This expresses a zeal for the unity of the church. This expresses the fact that we treasure this unity. Next statement, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We don't create it. We recognize it exists and we are zealous to maintain it. We are watching over our interactions with each other in a way that we're putting away the things that would would cause disunity. So there's a zeal for this and we treasure it. And our actions speak of that. So the ambition, the glory of God, the attitudes, humility, gentleness, patience, the actions, forbearance, and a holy zeal for its preservation. We treasure it. Then he talks about the awareness necessary to all of this. It all rests on a doctrinal theological foundation. Like everything else in the Christian life, we strive for unity with each other based on knowledge. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism... One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This organized in a Trinitarian fashion, which reminds us that all this is really flowing out of the knowledge of our fellowship with the one true and living God. This is what fuels our ambition. This is what informs our attitudes and actions. The fact that we know God and we are known by Him and we want to please Him And through salvation, we hold all these things in common. Fellowship with the Spirit, fellowship with the Son, fellowship with the Father. So that we're striving for all these things based on doctrine, based on theology. So having considered the need for unity and having considered the elements of it, now in verse 7, Paul turns our attention to an additional question, I guess we could say, and that is, how do you live this out practically? We're exhorted to it, the elements of it are explained to us, but now, if I'm going to strive for this, what does it actually look like in function? That is to say, how, how is a unified church to function? And so beginning at verse 7 down to verse 16, he teaches us about the operation of spiritual gifts. The one in whom we are unified is the one who has designed how we are meant to function together. He is the one who has given us what is necessary for us to function together in the form of spiritual enablement, spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts not only display our unity, they are necessary for the maintaining of that unity that we have in Christ. They contribute to that. In other words, we live out our unity not just in the form of personal relationships, but in the work of ministry. Let me say that again. We live out our unity in the work of ministry. Mutual ministry is a means of God for the unity of His church. We think about unity and we often just think about how we relate to each other, and that is important. We've already seen that. But there's this additional question. Are we working together? Are we... Serving together? Are we ministering together? In this way, the church is to display her unity in Christ. And so tonight, we think about, we begin thinking about the assets for local church unity the ambition, the attitudes, the actions, the awareness, and now the assets. What God has given us for functional unity, spiritual gifts. And tonight we're just going to take our time to deal with the very first thing that we see in the following verses. Verse 7, the distribution of spiritual gifts to each believer. The distribution of spiritual gifts to each believer. I've talked about this before. If you've been here any length of time, from time to time you'll hear me say something like this. I had the choice of either a really long sermon or a shorter sermon. You can thank me later I chose the shorter sermon. So we're just going to deal with one verse, verse 7. And the very first thing you'll notice in verse 7 is that he begins with a conjunction that implies contrast. That's interesting, isn't it? See the word, but. But, to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul, why would you begin this verse with a disjunctive conjunction? Why something that implies contrast? I mean, you're still carrying on the theme of unity. You see this all the way through verse 16. He's still talking about the unity of the church. So why is there the implication in verse 7 at the beginning of some sort of contrast going on here? In what way has his focus sort of shifted gears a bit? I think the answer is because what he's describing here does represent a sort of contrast. We're still thinking about unity, but as you think about functional unity, as you think about how we work together, serve together, minister together, he's making clear that unity is not to be thought of as uniformity. He's just talked about all of these glorious things that we all have in common in the same way. I mean, without distinction, without difference. We all share the same ambition. There's no difference. In terms of the aim that's been given to us all, we're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. That's true for all of us in the exact same way. The call to humility and gentleness and patience is not different for you than it is for me. It's all exactly the same. Forbearance, a zeal to preserve unity, this is the same for all of us. The seven ones that we were given in verses 4 through 6, we all share in this together in the exact same way way, all equally members of Christ's body, all having received the Holy Spirit in the same way. We all share the same hope, the same Lord. We've all exercised saving faith. We've all submitted to believers' baptism, if you talk about the local church. We all have the same Father. We all share in all of these things without any distinction, without any diversity. But when you come to the matter of spiritual gifts, there is diversity. Each one of us has been gifted in a unique way. We're going to learn we're not all gifted the same. What does that tell you? That the unity the church is to live out is a unity that still expresses diversity. Unity doesn't rule out diversity, and diversity doesn't rule out unity. In fact, we're going to learn it's necessary to the kind of unity that the Lord has ordained for His church. Say it to you this way: True unity, in its function, is not cookie cutter. It's not a situation where we all are meant to sort of walk and talk and act and behave and think and in exactly the same way, be able to serve in exactly the same way. That's not true unity. Martin Lloyd Jones put it very well. He said, "There's always the danger." of our conceiving of unity in terms of uniformity. Our tendency is to think of unity as consisting of a number of things which are absolutely identical in every single aspect, sorry, every single respect, with no difference at all, such as a sheet of postage stamps. But the Apostle is at pains to show us that this is not true unity, but a dull, drab uniformity. And just let me stop for a moment and say, I know the the creation reflects the fall and the curse, but look at the beauty of what God has created in His world. It all works together in this wonderful harmony, but it's not all exactly the same, is it? There's great diversity in what God has done. Yet He designed it in a way that it all with perfect harmony works together. And so it is with His new creation. So it is with salvation's work. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, Unity, he shows, is much bigger than that, a much grander thing. Any conception of unity which equates it with uniformity detracts from the essential greatness and glory of unity. In other words, unity is not something mechanical. It does not mean sameness. Now we see this in the the very next words after the word but, verse 7, but notice what he says, to each one of us. Grace was given to each one of us. There is the individual, right? To each and every one of us. He's been talking about this one body, and yet now he comes down to the level of the individual Christian. To you and to me, grace has been given. To each one of us. We belong to the one new man, but we've not lost our individual identity. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say this, "...the special glory of the unity is that it's a unity in diversity, a unity that comprehends variation and variability. We are essentially one, but in many respects we differ. We must keep these two principles together in our minds constantly. The diversity does not break the unity, and the unity does not do away with the diversity. This is the special glory of redeeming grace. This is the miracle of redemption." This is the peculiar phenomenon which the Christian church is to manifest and demonstrate to the world and which nothing else can do. And this is something, dear ones, that is stressed in the New Testament wherever you talk about spiritual gifts at the individual level. What is stressed again and again is this unity, but at the same time this diversity. So it was read earlier in Romans 12, Jeremy read it, Romans 12 verse 4 says this, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So, in the same way, think about your body, many members, not all having the same function. In the same way, we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. We've been joined to each other through God's saving work. But Then Paul says in verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. And he goes on to talk about how gifts are used in all their variation. But he's emphasizing there in Romans 12 that though we are one body, we have gifts that differ. And this is according to the grace that's been distributed. 1 Corinthians 12 says the same thing. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities. Right? There, there, there's a variety of gifts and a variety of way, you know, categories of service in which those gifts can be used and a variety of activities that belong to those categories of service. But in all that variety, there is the same Spirit and the same Lord and the same God, he goes on to say, who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I'm not going to talk about that tonight, but it is good to remember what he just says there in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, and that is, a spiritual gift is a manifestation of what the Spirit of God has imparted to the believer, and yet it's not used for yourself. A spiritual gift is used for the benefit of someone else, of the church. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Spiritual gifts are not given for self-edification, they're given for the church's edification. It's very important to remember when you are evaluating what the Lord has made you to do. There are far too many people thinking about their spiritual gift in terms of their own self-satisfaction. I want to do this. Well, if you're thinking rightly about spiritual gifts, it wasn't given to satisfy you. The gift was imparted to benefit the church. And so as we evaluate what we're made for, that's what we need to be thinking about Our motive must always be not selfward, but turned in the direction of others. How can I serve others? Lord, how would you be pleased to use me in the life of others? Elders of the church, how do you think I could best be used? Where would you want to plug me in? It's not about you figuring out what you want to do. It's about how can you be most useful. 1 Corinthians 12.12 is on to say this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, Again, he he begins with the analogy, think about your body. Just as it's one, has many members, all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. But the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So do you hear the two angles from which he's really rebuking a false view of spiritual gifts when he says... That you can't say because I'm not this other, I don't have the function of this other member. I don't really belong to the body. That's the one angle. Sort of self pity because I don't have the gift that I want. I'm not important. That's one view of it. The other part of it is the person who looks at that other member and says, We don't need you. Oh, that everyone would be like me. We don't really have need of anyone else. That proud attitude is rebuked by 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So, this unity is not uniformity because each individual is in view in verse 7, but to each one of us, grace was given. Now think about that. Grace was given. Grace, in this context, he's talking about a spiritual enablement for ministry that takes into account the individual gifts distributed to believers. The spiritual gift you have is an expression of the grace of God. God has gifted you for service, that is to say, He has given to you an enablement, an ability to serve Him and to serve His people. Harold Honer, commenting on the word grace, had this to say. The word charis, grace, was discussed at chapter 1, verse 2. It means unmerited or undeserved favor and denotes enablement. It is an abstract noun. And by its very nature is general. However, when an abstract noun has an article, and it does here, a particular aspect of the noun is stressed. In this context, it is a particular enablement given to each believer to empower them for ministry. It is very closely connected with charisma, grace gift, which is used in the parallel passage on gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, etc. Furthermore, Paul places the two terms side by side in two passages. 1 Corinthians 1, Romans chapter 12, thus it can be deduced that charisma is a particular manifestation of God's enabling charis for various types of ministry. So God enables the believer to serve in ministry and a particular manifestation of that enablement is your spiritual gift. So each one of us, though we have all of this in common, there is a bit of a contrast. The individual is not excluded in this one body. God still has a purpose for diversity and variety and the individual, yet we function together in a way that is in harmony, and He's enabled us to do this. We have assets for this in the form of spiritual gifts. That is the grace that's been given to us. Now, if someone were to ask, how do you have unity with such diversity? The answer is that the diversity has been distributed according to a perfectly wise mind. That is, all of these gifts have been distributed by the same person, Christ. Christ has distributed the gifts, and He has done this according to a perfectly wise design. He is the head of the church. The church is His body. He knows how His body is to function when you talk about each individual local expression of the universal body of Christ. He knows what He means for His church to do. So He has not only saved us, but gifted us for ministry in a way that in each individual congregation, there is what is necessary for that congregation to harmoniously do the work of God in this world. The gifts have not been distributed according to our desire. The gifts have been distributed according to His sovereign will. And with perfect wisdom and with a perfect purpose, each one of us has been gifted. That's how there's able to be unity with so much diversity because He is the one who designed how we work together. You see this distribution in the next statement. To each one of us, grace was given, notice, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ is in the ultimate sense the giver of these gifts. And to each one of us, there was this distribution according to His measure. The standard is His measure that then determines our place and our function in the body. Again, Romans 12 said this. Romans 12 verse 6, "...having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Use your gift as it is meant to be used. And we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Christ, by the Spirit of God, distributing these gifts. 1 Corinthians 12.11 makes clear that Christ has distributed these gifts by means of, by the agency of, the Holy Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 12.11 says, all these, speaking of spiritual gifts, are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So this is what we see in verse 7. We see the distribution of spiritual gifts to the individual believer, to each one of us, but despite all this sameness, all these things we hold in common in exactly the same way, without distinction, there is variety in the the church, and it's found in the realm of spiritual gifts. Because to each one of us, grace has been given according to Christ's measure, the measure of his gift, so that each one of us is equipped to do what he means for us to do, so that through mutual ministry, the church expresses this glorious unity in a way that the wisdom of God is put on display. Now, let's stop there tonight at verse 7. Let me just finish this evening by giving five observations from this verse and then five implications. So five things we observe, five things we we then need to take away from those observations. Observation number one, we've said it, but I want to underscore it. Unity is not uniformity. Individual uniqueness is not inherently in conflict with unity. And I'll talk more about that in just a moment when we get to the implications. But unity is not uniformity. We observe that in our verse. Second, the grace of salvation includes grace for service. The grace of salvation includes grace for service. There is no believer in verse 7 who is not gifted. To each one of us, to every one of us, grace has been given in the way that he's describing. There is no believer in this room who has not been given an enablement for ministry. Every one of us is gifted. So if, if you're saved, you're gifted. The grace of salvation includes grace for service. Third, the grace for service is not the same for each person. You're all gifted, but you're all, not all gifted the same. And that's by design. Fourth, the grace of service is the gift of Christ and is measured by Christ. And then fifth observation, unique giftedness is not only necessary for the expression of unity, it's necessary for the maintenance of unity. And we're going to see this. We're not going to be able to dig into this tonight, but you'll notice when he moves beyond the gifts distributed to each individual believer and then he moves to the gifts given to the church in the form of gifted men, Verse 11, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastor, teachers. What does Christ do through these men? He equips His saints for their work. God uses these teachers to equip His people for their work, for the work of service. And what's the result of that work? The building up of the body of Christ, notice, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. So there's this unity that is the result of the function of these gifted men. So not only do these gifts display the kind of unity that belongs to the church, they are actually used by God to maintain that unity that we might go on displaying this glorious oneness that we have in Jesus Christ. So these are the observations. Unity is not uniformity. The grace of salvation means you've been graced for service. But it's not the same for each person. It is the gift of Christ, however, it is measured by Christ, and it's necessary. Your gift, you and your gift, are necessary in this church for the expression of our unity in Christ and for the maintenance of that unity. Now, what do we take away from that? Let me give you five things. First of all, any concept of discipleship or unity that encourages uniformity is not the work of the Spirit of God. It's not what God designed. It's not what Christ does. It's not the work of the Holy Spirit. When we are trying to push everyone into our mold that isn't found in Scripture, it's just our concept of what each and every believer should be like. There's no doubt the Bible exhorts us to a oneness of mind, but what that has to do with is what God has revealed. We all agree when it comes to the truth on display, unmistakable, on the pages of Scripture. There should be unity there, a unity of the faith. That's what he goes on to talk about. These gifted men are meant to produce in the life of the church, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, to the full knowledge of the Son of God. There's that kind of oneness, Certainly. But how that gets lived out in terms of personality, in terms of the practical application of biblical truth to everyday decisions down to the level of your individual life and your family, whenever you find in a church there is no tolerance for variety and differences, you can know you're looking at a distortion of what unity is really all about. Let me try to make it practical. To the degree that my marriage is healthy by the grace of God, to the degree that our family has reflected Christ to the grace of God, where your family is healthy by the grace of God and reflects Christ, we're going to find a lot of commonness. Both of our families will believe the Bible is the Word of God. It is inerrant, it is authoritative, it is to be submitted to, it is to saturate our thinking. We're to live it out. We will hold that in common. But how that will get expressed on a daily basis as we interact with each other in my home versus your home will probably not look exactly the same. And guess what, dear church? That's okay. In fact, that's how it should be. And what happens sometimes when this truth gets distorted is we don't have toleration for that. And instead of personal discipleship becoming, let me teach you the Word of God and let me tether you to Jesus, it becomes your marriage needs to function exactly like mine. The way you raise your children needs to look exactly like the way I've raised mine. In other words, it would be Jackie and I looking to replicate ourselves instead of pointing you to Christ. If you understand the difference, would you say, amen? So we hold much in common, but it's not replication. It's not uniformity. So when you meet with a church where discipleship turns into everyone walking the same, talking the same, spouting off the same phrases, dressing the same, you know what you're witnessing there is in some way, even if it's just a tick off, it's not what God designed. Unity, yes. Uniformity. No, it's not even true in terms of how we've been gifted. God has gifted us all differently. And He has wired us all differently from the standpoint of things that are just natural, personality and background, all sorts of things. We are different people. Where there is true unity, that's to the glory of God. There's this unbelievable beauty that flows out of people loving each other and walking together and serving together and ministering to each other where they recognize a true unity in Christ, but they're not all exactly the same. Second implication. Every genuine believer not only has a role to play in the ministry of the church, we've been equipped for it. So you, dear brother, sister, you have a role to play in the life and ministry of this church. If you are a genuine believer and you've joined this church, we're thinking about local church unity, you have a role to play in the ministry and life of this church. Not only do you have a role to play, you've been equipped for it. You have a God, a Christ-distributed enablement to be useful in the life of this body. And it may seem to you that you're a foot or it may seem to you that you're an ear. But where would the body be if all it had was the sense of sight? The head can't say to the feet, we have no need of you. So no matter how you've been gifted to serve in the life of this church, your ministry is necessary. And you've been equipped by Almighty God, by your Savior and God to benefit this church through your contribution. You need to know that and believe that. But that leads to a third implication, that is there's no room for jealousy or pride or ambition. I'm talking now about sinful ambition in the matter of, of spiritual gifts, because we don't determine them. 1 Corinthians 12, who distributed the gifts? The Spirit of God, according to His will. What is that the outworking of? Christ's gift. These are all expressions of Christ's gifts to men. So our Lord is the one who determines our place in the body. Our Lord is the one who determines what we're gifted to do. I don't get to determine it. I didn't get to choose it. What do I have that I wasn't given? And if I was given whatever it is I'm meant to use, why do I boast as if it wasn't given to me? This is what Paul has to teach the Corinthians about. Do you ever find yourself jealous over what someone else is made to do? Do you ever find yourself a little jealous because you don't get to do what someone else gets to do? Maybe even in pride... You think you could do what they do, or maybe you think you could do it better. But God doesn't open the door for you to do that. At least He hasn't yet, so what do you think you're meant to learn from that? And who determines it? Who determines it? So there's no room for jealousy or sinful ambition or pride in the matter of spiritual gifts because the Word of God makes clear who the one is who distributes these gifts. Our Lord does by his Spirit. Have you learned that? Do you feel insignificant? I mean, let's turn that in the other direction. Do you feel insignificant because you're not gifted to do what someone else does? That's equally sinful. You say, you're right, Pastor Richard. I don't feel, but I don't feel proud. I'm not jealous. I just don't feel like I have any real purpose. I want to say to you, you're sinning also. Because the Lord has gifted you for ministry, not only should there be no jealousy or pride, there should also not be at the same time an indifference or a discontentment or even a laziness as if you don't have a God-given enablement to serve because you do. I don't have it in my notes, but I will say this. If you say, well, how do I know what I'm made to do? The answer is with humility, serve in the church, wherever the Lord gives you opportunity. It doesn't matter what realm. And then watch what emerges out of that activity. If you're gifted to teach, for example, that will eventually emerge. If your gift is in the realm of service, you know, you have speaking gifts and serving gifts, two broad categories of the gifts that are permanent and meant for the edification of the church. Speaking gifts, serving gifts. It doesn't hurt in the least if you have been given a gift that has an element in it of teaching just to go to work in the realm of service. Because eventually opportunities will arise where you have the opportunity to impart truth to someone. And that begins to shine and it begins to show up. Or on the other hand, if, if you're not a teacher, but a teacher in this church says, hey, would you be my assistant and help me? I mean, you have the ability, though it may not be your primary element of giftedness, to learn truth and to impart truth, but if it is your heart to really just step in there and to assist someone and to serve in any way, that will begin to shine. So jump in wherever the opportunity exists and go to work and then watch as people are blessed and what God made you to do begins to emerge. Can I tell you what you don't do is go take some spiritual gift test. Those things are worthless. They're just personality tests and it's even worthless at that level. Are you a collie? Are you a gold retriever? I mean, what are you? Are you an otter? You've heard those tests. I mean, they're just silly. Isn't it interesting Nowhere that I can think of in the New Testament are you told, discover what your gift is. Rather, we're all exhorted with the knowledge we have one. Now go serve the Lord. And what you're made to do begins to emerge. And the church will affirm it. And the opportunities will be there over time. And you'll know where you're dealing with sinful jealousy and pride because you're not willing to wait. You have something in your mind that you're meant to do and therefore... You won't wait for that to emerge. You won't wait for the affirmation of the church. You're going to push yourself forward instead of with humility saying, Lord, it's a privilege for me to serve You if I'm a doorman in Your house. Fourth implication, there should be contentment and joy in the matter of spiritual gifts because Christ has determined them. If it is the Lord's will for you to serve in this particular way, shouldn't you rejoice in that? I mean, shouldn't you be content with that? Isn't it enough that Jesus has made you to know Him, has saved you, forgiven all your sins, and now, amazing, has taken this sinner who deserved the wrath of God and not only forgiven you, but transformed you and given you grace to serve Him. He actually gives you the opportunity to serve Him and to be a blessing to other people. Shouldn't that give you joy? And shouldn't that be enough? Aren't you content with that? Beware sin creeping into your heart when it comes to the matter of ministry and service and giftedness. Now when you see this, that to each one of us, what's that word? Grace was given. Grace. Even spiritual enablement for ministry belongs to the realm of the grace of God. We didn't deserve it. We don't earn it. We did nothing to receive it. God gave it to us. Now, what a privilege. We get to serve the one who's forgiven all of our sins. And it's in accordance with Christ's perfect wisdom. Can't we trust Him? Can't we trust Him? He's the one who determined the standard. He's the one who measured it out. So there should be contentment and joy in the matter of spiritual gifts because Christ has determined them. Fifth and final implication. We'll stop here tonight. A church, then, a church struggling with disunity must not only examine itself relationally, right? Motives, attitudes, actions, doctrinal awareness, the things we talked about before verse 7. A church struggling with disunity must not only examine itself relationally, it must examine itself functionally. Where does disunity show up in churches? Not only where there are relational problems, but where there are operational problems. That is, we misunderstand spiritual gifts or we're not putting them to use. I'm never surprised when someone is disgruntled. This isn't always the case, but I'm never surprised when someone is disgruntled and the question is, well, how are you serving? And the answer is, we're not. Because that's not how you're meant to live. And by the way, Let me say this, all service is not found in formal categories. I'm not saying what class are you teaching here, what ministry are you plugged into. I'm not saying that at all. I'm asking, are you mindful of the fact that you're made to minister to other people? Therefore, are you alert to the opportunities and stepping into the opportunity when you recognize it? It might be a word of encouragement to someone today. It might be noticing someone who's on the periphery of this church and you say to them, hey, next Sunday would you and your wife have lunch with us?" It might be recognizing someone looks sad and saying, is there any way I could pray for you today? I'm not saying that all the things we're talking about tonight find expression in some formal ministry of the church. I'm saying when you stop thinking about other people and you stop recognizing that God has made you to serve His people and when you stop looking for the opportunity to be useful in the lives of other people you're falling short of what you've been saved to do on this side of heaven. Which is why it's not surprising then that all sorts of bad attitudes begin to creep in. And wrong thinking and wrong responses. So what do we see in verse 7? We see that after all of this oneness that is exactly the same for all of us, our unity is not to be confused with uniformity. Because God's designed for the functional expression of our unity includes variety, diversity, down to the enablement He's given us to serve. Our gifts are different. I believe we've each been given a gift, singular. This is how Peter describes it. But that gift is full of variety. It's multicolored. And if you were to take the gift categories in the New Testament that have to do with permanent edifying gifts, these lists that are given, I don't think they're meant to be thought of as being exhausted. They are representative. And God in His perfect wisdom takes various parts of these categories you see and in a way that's sort of blended together, that imparts to each believer a unique way in which they are meant, a way that even fits with who they are by birth to serve His church so that there's no exact duplicate of you. That's what verse 7 reminds us of so that we are ready to serve the Lord in our own unique way, but in a way that is in perfect harmony with our brothers and sisters. That glorifies Jesus. Is that what you're striving for? Is that what you desire? Is that what you're ready to do? I wonder what has God made for you to do in the life of this congregation? Why did He bring you here? How's He going to use you? And away with the thought of some grand thing that's going to put you on display. I mean, if that's what jumps into your head, yeah, I mean, what marvelous thing is God going to do with me? You're on the wrong track. Rather, the thing that ought to jump into all of our heads is, Lord, whatever that is, however small, however unnoticed, if it pleases you and if it blesses someone else, how privileged I am that you've taken my rescued life and used it for your glory and the good of my brothers and sisters. Lord, use me for your glory and for the good of others. And God's people would say, Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You that the unity we have is real and it's fixed and it's in one sense final. It's found in those seven ones in verses 4-6. through six. But in another sense, Lord, in its expression, in its function, in its experience, in its enjoyment, we go on striving to maintain it. And Lord, one of the ways that You have ordained that this happens is that we serve together. Ministry is a means that you use for the ongoing maintenance of the unity of your church. And so, Lord, help us to recognize the truths that we've seen tonight. I mean, to really have these things get into our minds and hearts, that we would recognize that we are made to be different and yet to walk together so that each one of us contributes what we're meant to contribute to the body. And in that way, your church grows into the likeness of Jesus. So, Lord, use us in this way to this end. For your great name's sake, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.